Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It was called the single greatest terrorism opportunity in New Zealand history, but others called it a toothless, irrelevant has-been. But APEC, the free trade forum, was about to play an unexpected role in an international humanitarian crisis, and New Zealand was where it all happened. Kia ora, I'm Justin Gregory, this is Eyewitness, and the story of APEC in Auckland, how an increasingly marginalised economics talkfest helped save a nation from destruction. In 1999, APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, was facing an uncertain future. For 10 years, 21 Pacific Rim economies had gathered annually to talk trade and hold photo ops while wearing each other's clothes, a tradition known as the silly shirts. It's not so silly, really. APEC today makes up around 60% of the world's GDP and close to 50% of all trade. But back then, APEC was struggling. The 97 Asian financial crisis had hit a number of its economies hard, and the forum's response had been seen as inadequate. And by 1999, people were questioning its future and its worth. Jenny Shipley wasn't one of those people. She was the Prime Minister of a national government in New Zealand, and she had a lot going on. A year earlier, she'd sacked her deputy and coalition partner, Winston Peters, and was leading a minority government into an election with some very tight polling. Plus, in September, she'd be hosting APEC in Auckland. US President Bill Clinton was coming, as was China's Zhang Ziming. Australia's John Howard, leaders from Japan, Korea, South America, even Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, as he was then, from Russia. The arrival of 7,000 foreign leaders, staff and media in Auckland would shut down roads and schools, fill hotels, shut the Domain, the Museum and Altair Square, and cost the taxpayer $45 million. Was all this worth it for a two-day talk fest? Shipley hopes so. Besides, she says the real work isn't done at APEC. It happens over the preceding year or so, at other forums, in hallway meetings, on the phone, building a sense of agreement and cooperation, which is just as well, because the 1999 APEC forum was going to be a busy one. I still feel exhausted thinking about it. Now, it's important to know that APEC has strict rules about what can and cannot be discussed there. The rules around the conference are that it is to be economically focused, the economic well-being of the region, how business leaders can get through customs, what customs rules are, what simplification will assist the 21 economies within the region to do business more effectively together. APEC is absolutely not about foreign policy. You only get the leaders of economies to come if they know that their foreign policy won't be subjected to scrutiny or interfered with. But having said that, the power of APEC, where you've got leaders and foreign ministers together physically in a country, uh, was always potentially going to be useful. And that turned out to be true. 
These Timorese go to the ballot box next Monday to decide on the question of autonomy within Indonesia. If that's rejected, President Habibi says he will ask the Indonesian parliament to grant East Timor independence. Timor-Leste, or East Timor, has had a hard history. Colonised by the Portuguese in the 16th century, this Southeast Asian nation declared freedom from colonial rule on the 28th of November 1975. Nine days later, neighbouring Indonesia invaded. The Timorese fought back. An estimated 100,000 people were killed in that first year, and the next two decades of occupation would see massacres, torture, executions, sexual assault and starvation as a result of famine. Mostly, the rest of the world turned a blind eye. But by early 1999, that was changing. The Timorese had never stopped fighting back, and Indonesia's economy, which had tanked during the 97 Asian financial crisis, was being bailed out by the IMF. Australia's John Howard said his country would no longer support Indonesia's presence in East Timor. President BJ Habibi greenlit the referendum and allowed the UN to administer it, but wouldn't let foreign peacekeepers be present. This would be an insult to the Indonesian army, he said. 30th of August, 1999, the day of the vote. Pro-Indonesian militias threaten a sea of fire if the Timorese people choose independence. The UN says that more than 90% of the 430,000 voters registered in East Timor turned out to vote, and voting has been much smoother than expected. But there's a widespread fear the militia may try to exact revenge on those they suspect voted for independence. On the 4th of September, the result was in. 75% vote in favour of independence, and the militias begin their killing spree. That sea of fire swept in. There are major developments this morning in East Timor. Refugees are being gunned down and thousands forced to flee East Timor as the Indonesian military openly joins in a campaign of ethnic cleansing in the territory. Witnesses say Indonesian soldiers and pro-Jakarta militiamen are marching screaming refugees at gunpoint and herding them onto trucks to drive them out of East Timor. Time and again, incident after incident, the Indonesian police have shown themselves either unwilling um, to act or or unable, or even in, in some cases in cahoots with the militia. President Habibi says reports of violence were lies and fantasies. The world disagrees with them, and they demand an international peacekeeping force to protect the East Timorese people. Now, this could only happen if Indonesia agreed, and if their army didn't oppose what they would inevitably see as an invasion by foreign troops. Habibi says no. Pro-Jakarta gangs are now running wild in East Timor, killing, burning and firing shots at refugees with no resistance from Indonesian security forces. Extremely grim situation and looks very much like part of, of an armed rebellion against the uh, UN presence and against the referendum. Uh, the militias have pro- proved to be indiscriminately violent uh, and, and ready to kill anyone they suspect of being uh, active in the pro-independence movement. Uh, there are fears that hundreds of people have already been killed. It's hard to exaggerate the reports we're hearing there. There is a humanitarian catastrophe building in East Timor uh, and the only uh, astonishing thing I think about it is the, the silence and inactivity of the international community. But with APEC just days away and Indonesia attending, an opportunity arises. But it'd be a tricky one. Everyone gets on the phone. There were a significant number of telephone calls. I, I spoke to Kofi Annan, I spoke to Clinton. Uh, and as the week went on, there were more calls. To and fro, to and fro, how will we handle this?
It's decided that an emergency meeting of foreign ministers will take place on Thursday the 9th of September, just before APEC proper begins. Don McKinnon, New Zealand's foreign minister, will chair. PM Shipley rings BJ Habibi in Indonesia to let him know. The call doesn't go well. Well, it was a difficult telephone call, and it was one that, you know, most leaders' calls are pleasant or indeed supportive of each other. I had a number of officials in the room with me, and I held the phone out at one stage where I was being um, yelled at. Uh, But look, I understood. It was a very difficult situation for them. It was a very difficult situation for many in the region. But the thing that had changed was that not only Western-aligned economies within APEC, but also Singapore and others in the region felt that this was something that had to be progressed, and that made a difference. September 9, the eve of APEC, and Auckland is in a tense mood. Security measures mean activists are arrested, homeless people swept out of the inner city, and every inch of downtown searched for bombs. Sharpshooters are on rooftops. Men with sunglasses, earpieces and hidden guns are everywhere. One newspaper calls the scene Apecalypse Now. Bill Clinton's motorcade thunders in from the airport along a motorway shut down especially for him. East Timorese resistance leader and Nobel Peace Prize winner José Ramos Orta arrives much more quietly but proves loudly effective in his advocacy. Altair Square is barricaded off from both anti-Indonesian and anti-APEC protesters because, let's face it, not everyone agrees that free trade is a good idea. Overall, the press coverage is sceptical of the forum and certainly of the likelihood of anything good coming out of it. As the leaders enjoy dinner together, their foreign ministers meet to save the people of East Timor. Everything hinges on this emergency meeting. It fails. No agreement is reached. And Don McKinnon says the issue is bigger than APEC. But that might not be right, because the phone calls don't stop, and neither do those meetings and hallways. There was a deep consensus across this broad group, and many of those leaders had spoken about this issue prior to that meeting actually occurring. So it was a heaping of pressure that this can't continue. John Howard lobbies a reluctant Bill Clinton. Clinton talks to the Indonesians, and on September the 12th, he makes his move. The United States, Clinton announces, will no longer support the IMF bailout of Indonesia unless their army withdraw and allow peacekeepers in. Indonesia caves within hours and agrees to everything. An international peacekeeping force called Interfet leaves for East Timor just eight days later with a battalion of Kiwi troops, our biggest deployment since the Korean War. Jenny Shipley is there to see them off. No Prime Minister does that lightly. I remember meeting those families and their children and watching them farewell each other and having a deep sense of um, responsibility. I was very proud of them. Away from the spotlight, trade and economic discussions do take place at APEC 1999. New Zealand and Singapore signed the P2 Free Trade Agreement, which later becomes the TPP, and nowadays is called the CPTPP, or Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. China and the US hold a summit, and China inches towards joining the World Trade Organization, and three state visits are held here, with South Korea, China, and the US. A framework for the integration of women into APEC is accepted, and everyone agrees that a thing called the information superhighway will remain free to use. Two months after APEC, Jenny Shipley lost the 1999 election to Helen Clark's Coalition of Labour and the Alliance Party. She retired from Parliament three years later. Don McKinnon became the Secretary-General of the Commonwealth, an appointment widely predicted after his chairing of the crisis meeting that Thursday night before APEC began. 
An estimated 1,400 people were killed in the crisis in East Timor and 300,000 forced over the border into Indonesian West Timor. The New Zealand deployment there lasts until 2003 and there's a second deployment in 2006. Over 4,000 of our Defence Force personnel serve in East Timor. Five of them die there. But by 2002, the violence was largely over and East Timor became the Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste. They've had their problems since then, but their future belongs to them. APEC will be back in Auckland in 2021. It was meant to be held at the Sky City Convention Centre, but a fire there in 2019 means that's not going to happen. 10,000 delegates and media will have to find another place to meet. 21 years ago, Auckland's first APEC was considered a bit of a failure by most commentators. There was lots of agreement, they argued, but not enough agreements. But APEC was the place where the right people met at the right time, and they were able to use all those soft skills of diplomacy and all the goodwill that they'd built up over years. Leaders being present together, the formal agenda is what it is, but I can tell you that the informal engagement of solving problems, prompting, facilitating, sympathising, encouraging. I watched all sorts of conversations going on in the sides of APEC. Uh, I'm a strong supporter of getting the right people in the room to do the business. And in the end, an unambiguous, non-partisan good emerged from APEC 1999. Jenny Shipley recalls it as an extraordinary time. They were big days. This episode of Eyewitness was produced by me, Justin Gregory. The engineer was Christo Kurajov and Alex Aylett McMillan. Tim Watkin is the executive producer for podcasts and series. You can listen to every other episode of Eyewitness and plenty of other RNZ podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, and of course at rnz.co.nz. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.